We begin this morning by praying, Father, you're good, you're incredibly good to us. Every good gift we have uh, comes by your hand. And um, we know how prone we are to take for granted all of those good things. Help us to not do that this morning. We acknowledge your presence, you're here with us. Uh, We acknowledge that you've made yourself known to us, that we see it in your word, uh, in scripture as we open it and and receive it as that, as your word, perfect uh, in truth and wisdom and um, complete authority. And so help us, uh, give us grace to open our hearts and receive it and to point to uh, the word of God, Jesus, and to do that well and to receive him well and to live for him. And so we pray in this uh, time we have together that your word would be clear to us and that we grow from it and it bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me have you turn to John chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 through 30 this morning. And if you've been following along and you're interested in the passage, uh, the woman caught in adultery is what it's usually known, I will treat that passage this coming Wednesday. There's some, you you can notice if you've got a modern translation, uh, some notes uh, around that. So we'll talk about all that this coming Wednesday. So if you're interested, uh, come and we'll uh, chat about that one. And I'm going to, this morning, because it is a bigger passage, I'm going to read as I go. So we'll, you know, we'll make a point, read that section of passage, of the passage and so on. But we need to do a couple of things or a few things to help us frame where we are in the Gospel of John. So John writes this great book pointing us to Jesus and a few things that we should keep in mind as we jump in this morning. And one is the thesis, all right? There are other ways of saying this, but what I'm about to tell you is one of the good ways of saying this. The thesis in John is this. Life is in Jesus. Okay? That's the, the big point. Life is in Jesus. Now, that's a big deal if you're somebody spiritually who's dead, like the dead don't need anything more than they need life. If you're dead, you don't need to consider a new tattoo, whether you should drop 10, right, a couple of grand. You don't need any of that. What you need is life. And what John points us to in Jesus is Jesus' is life. Um, your spiritual condition is frankly this, and you read the Gospel of John and you'll, you'll come to grips with this. You're condemned. You will perish if there's no effective intervention. You're blind. It's not a compliment to your insight, right? You're, you're blind um, so that you're in darkness. You can't see. You don't have a way to God. There's not a path that you can take because your sin has destroyed that, okay? And that you're outside of the frame of truth and reality. So your sin distorts it for you so that you don't know how the world works nor do you know how the kingdom of God works. And so you have no way before you, no hope that you can make it, and then back to the theme. There's life in Jesus. So come to him and believe. John 3.16. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Or John 14.16. No, 14.6. Bad notes. It's Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. So the big point in John is that for people who are wrestling with death and sin and its effects and all of that, life is in Jesus, so put your hope in Him. Come and believe in Him. 
That's what you need more than anything else. So that's one of the things, is to keep in mind the thesis of the big book, of the book. Life is in Jesus. If you're going to know life, you're going to know it in Jesus. Another thing is the setting here, we're in John 7 and 8, and the setting here is that they are at the Feast of Booths. Another name for that is the Feast of Tabernacles. Big celebration they did. We've talked about that in the past. There's a command in the Old Testament to do that, to celebrate, you know, seasonally connected to harvest, but also to celebrate what God had done in providing for them after He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so, when Jesus, a lot of these are Jesus' words here that we're going to read. And when Jesus is making himself known this way, that a couple of things, the reason that's significant is that this is a celebration, right? It's a holiday that God commanded, and that's going to inform part of what he says here. It's also very public where he is. It's not as though he's got a few, there are passages like this, where he's just got a few followers around him and he's having a conversation. This is a big one. So it's a conversation in front of everybody. So that's the setting, this national religious holiday, very public setting that everybody's celebrating in Jerusalem, the main city. The others that there's tremendous opposition. So if you want to do a little survey, if you're already at John 8, if you look at verse 13, you can just sort of see it in the questions or the challenges that they make to Jesus. Like, for example, in John uh, 8.13, it says, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Right? What are they looking for there? Pop down to verse 19. Where is your father? Uh, Verse 22, will he kill himself? They're they're mocking him. And then verse 25, who are you? This is a a frame where they're they're like uh, trying to get this information so that they can make a stand against Jesus. So this is, they're playing chess. It's, uh, you don't want to play chess against Jesus, but that's what they're trying to do. So, why are they opposing him? Well, the, the question, or why are they rejecting him? The, the, the question that maybe you should ask yourself is something like this. Why believe in Jesus? Why... And he's making the case. He's laying out his credentials there. Why believe in Jesus? You know, versus something else. Because here's the thing. You won't believe in nothing. You're going to believe in something. And so what are you going to stand on? What is it going to be about? Is it going to be rooted in reality? So what, what, you know, what are you going to believe in? If you don't believe in Jesus, what is it going to be? Or why should you believe in Jesus? And while he's in this public setting, in the midst of this celebration, with these opponents who are trying to find a case against him, He's making the case for this. And so we're going to walk through it. I'm going to give you four things. But I want you to ask the question of yourself personally, why should you believe in Jesus? Okay? So here's the first point, is what, or the first reason is that Jesus is the light. The implication here is that the world is dark on its own, right? That the, the world needs light. And as a worldling, you're somebody in darkness. So look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus makes a claim about himself and a claim about his followers. So if you're a follower of Jesus, he's making a claim about you based on who he is. But the claim that he's making about himself is in this dark world where sin and darkness seems to reign, right? And there's there's chaos. That he's the light. This is an incredible thing to say. For 
I mean, put yourself in their shoes. If you think he's just a guy and somebody stands up and says, not I'm the light, somebody says, I am the, definite article, the light, so the only, I am the light of the world. Now, this is a, this is a claim of claims. Uh, two particular points here. Kind of interesting. This is his second I am statement uh, in John that's connected to something. I am the light of the world. Now, scholars jump on this because there's a, there's a particular construction there that the I am stands out. It's like emphatic. And it harkens back to God's self-identification, you know. So Moses asked God when God commissions him, right? And, uh, you know, the whole take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, and, you know, God commissions them, and Moses argues with them, and I'm going to send you out. And Moses says, who is sending, like, when I give them your name, who should I say is sending me? And God says to him, I am. And if you think, theologically, you think, oh, this makes sense, because God's identifying himself as the eternal God, I am who always was, who is, and always will be, right? The eternal God. He is super time. He's not your time bound. I'm time bound, but he's not. He's above and beyond time. Time can't measure him. Time does not constrain him. He's, he, he lives in a realm far beyond what you and I can imagine. And so the way he identifies himself to Moses, and, if, and when, when people think, oh, he's reflecting on the godness of God. And Jesus here, in response to who he thinks he is, because that's being challenged, says, I am the light of the world. There'll be a couple of more places that this shows up. So that's one. This is the second I am statement in Jesus' self-identification. The second thing is this is the context at the feast. And he says, I'm the light. Okay? And part of the Feast of Booths is out in the courtyard of the, 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 the court of women, they lit these four huge lamps at night. I mean, they were huge. And so they would light it up, and in the courtyard, you know, people would dance through the night every night for this, like, seven-day feast. You know, so there, there are these external sources that ask, how did they celebrate this? It's part of what they did. They lit up the courtyard. People got out there and danced. Obviously, weren't Baptists, right? So they jump in there. And they're, you know, they're kicking it around and all night, every night. And uh, as a matter of fact, I personally was at a, a big fundraiser last night. And there's a place that where, you know, they're playing music. There was a kind of an 80s cover band. I'm not exactly sure what you would call them. And all these otherwise dignified people, right, are going out to the dance floor. And they're, you know, like, raise your hands in the air, that kind of thing, right? And they're dancing around. And, and I look over, and my wife is like, come on, baby, we're going to go dance. And I was like, no, baby, you're going to go dance. I'm going to watch it. So she goes out there, and she's got, like, imperfect rhythm, you know? Kara's, like, waving her hands, and she goes out there, and she's misleading other people. They're going with her, and they're dancing and all this. And I'm thinking, and then she came back later, and she's like, well, do you want to dance? I'm like, the answer to that question is always no. Sometimes I'm willing to dance, but I'm not, I'm not wanting to dance now. Because I worked out earlier. It was kind of late. I had these uncomfortable shoes. I'm in my 50s. A white man in his 50s never looks good dancing, and I don't have time to stretch out, right? <laughs> so anyway, I was very, very reluctant. But God wasn't in the middle of this. And in a feast of booze, they're celebrating the light God brings, as a matter of fact, 
People who observed it way back in the day would say you could see the glow from the temple courtyard all over the city of Jerusalem. I mean, these are massive lights. And it was observable whether you were participating in the feast or not. Even if you were outside, you were going to see the glow. Even if you were outside the city, you were going to see the glow over the city. And that's what people are observing. And it's in that context that Jesus says, I'm the light. So God has brought you light, and that's a symbol, and you're celebrating. But you want to know what you're really celebrating if you celebrate that in truth? You're celebrating my coming. I'm the light of the world. I'm the light you're going to dance in and celebrate because God has made himself known in this dark world. So, you know, there's, there's the statement. And then, since he says he's the light, this claim for the person who follows him, and if that's you, it applies to you, is that you won't walk in darkness. If you've ever camped out, you know, where there's... It's funny how we get used to artificial lighting, the wonders of technology? If you've ever been out somewhere where you have no power source, no source of light, and there's no cover, right? It's a, it's a dark night. And you find yourself groping around in the darkness just to find basic things and to do basic things. Can you imagine your whole life being like that? And what Jesus says is, here's your context spiritually. You're in darkness. And if you follow me, you're never going to be in darkness again. You can see, right? It's, um, by the way, the, having the light is connected to life, right? Uh, I, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if you're going to see, you're, since you're in the dark, uh, you're going to see because, because Jesus is the light, okay? So that's the first thing. Why believe in Jesus? Because he's the light. You're in a dark place. You're in the dark world. The second is that um, Jesus is a true witness. Let's look at verses 13 through 20 together. So the Pharisees, they hear this and they, they challenge what he's saying. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. And so they say in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written, about the, or it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So a couple of initial comments you can see in that last verse we read that the context is he's in the treasury portion of the temple. And again, we're supposed to be, I mean, what John is reinforcing is that this is a public, everybody's there kind of a situation. All right, it's a mixed crowd. So his opponents are there, these kind of uh, still yet to make up their mind uh, portions of the crowd are there, and they're going to fall on both sides. His followers are there, and, and Jesus is there. And so it's a very public setting. And, very, and the other thing to notice is this is very similar to point number one. 
So why, why break them out? Why, when we say Jesus is the light, and what we find in this follow-on passage is Jesus is a true witness. He's a witness. You can be a, you know, there are false witnesses in the world, lots of them. And there are true witnesses. But the, the, the difference is this. You could say it this way. Jesus is a witness to the truth. He's the ultimate witness to the truth. He's sent from God, but God has sent other true witnesses into the world. But the distinction is, He is the light. There's no other light. Now, all, the, all, the, all the true witnesses bear witness to the true light. Okay, He's the only light, um, but He's the ultimate uh, witness to the truth, and other witnesses have come into the world uh, to corroborate and confirm that. All right, so they give him this challenge, right? We said this in verse 13, we pointed it out. They say his witness can't be true. And the reason they say that is they say, you're bearing witness about yourself. And what they mean by that, it seems, is that in their law, and that's why Jesus uh, points out your law later, it's an interesting way to put that. It's God's law, he says, your law. Your law requires two witnesses, Right? And it looks like what they're saying is, since it's just you, if, if, the, if law, and then they built on it like they tended to do with the tradition, is that in these bigger, massive cases, in something for it to be um, a testimony that would be received, credible testimony, meet the technical requirements, the legal standards, what's the burden of proof, you had to have two witnesses, okay? For example, in big cases like capital cases. And here Jesus is, and it's just him. I'm the light of the world. And, you know, again, put yourself in their shoes. He's saying, I'm the light of the world. How do you refute a guy who morally there's nothing wrong with him? And these, these signs he's, uh, you know, laying out there for these miracles he's performing look like very much like God-like conduct, right? God conduct that he's putting out there. He's healing people and turning water into wine and stuff like that and you know, so it's very hard to refute when he's making these statements, there's nothing morally wrong with him. He's generating a following, and he's showing these signs that he's from God. And so they're, they're trying to think of what could come up, and this is the best thing they can come up with. Aha, gotcha. There's only you. The law requires two witnesses, and there's just you. There's just one. And so Jesus responds. He basically says this. He lays this out in three parts. Number one, in verse 14, he says, I'm a first-hander when it comes to where I'm from. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. And it's a little bit like this. You know, where you live, you can be a primary source for that. You can testify to that. Right? That's a, you know about that. That's where you're from. And he makes the statement in verse 14, at the end of that, he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I'm from and where I'm going. In other words, I... I I write firsthand experience. I'm from heaven. But you don't know where I come from or where I am going. And he's pointing out that unlike him, they don't know anything about that because they're not connected to heaven. They're not connected to God's kingdom. The second thing is verse 15. Look at that again. They're judging according to the flesh, he says. That's not what he's doing. Here's the problem is they're taking this standard for their world and all of that, and they're, they're using a, a fleshly way of judging a spiritual matter. And they're doing that, so they're, they're judging this spiritual matter by human standards. You're taking your frame of reference in this world, and you're thinking it applies to mine. 
And what Jesus is letting them know is that there's more than that before you. You are not judging an ordinary case when I'm before you. When I'm before you, you're not just judging like, you know, a situation that arose. This is outside that frame of reference for you. But here's where he really sticks the landing. In verses 16 and 18, what he lets them know is this. Even if I testify, I have a second witness. So he's like, he's denying their claim that they, he's got to have a second witness, but he says, even so I do. Verses 16 and 18, or 16 through 18, it's not I alone who judge. Uh, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so then the Pharisees challenge that, second part of the challenge in this, where is your father? Now, I think part of what they're doing is they're trying to find some way to entrap Jesus or uh, to get him. That they're, they're probably trying to get this nailed down and investigate it like they did with the man born blind who was healed. And, you know, they got, the authorities got uh, that man's parents and interrogated them. And so, you know, they're, again, they're thinking in human terms. And, you know, can they bring Jesus' dad in to challenge him? And this is where Jesus lands on verse 19 at the end of it. Where's your father? You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What's he saying? He's saying you wouldn't know him if you saw him. Um, and keep in mind that his father is God. If you did know God, then you would recognize me, and this wouldn't be a problem at all. In other words, if you had eyes to see it, you would know there are two witnesses. You, you would know that this meets all the standards that you have in mind. At the end of it, it makes note that they didn't, again, they, they haven't arrested him yet because it wasn't time. Who's in charge here? Is it the leaders with all their authority or is it God? Um, if you're going to know truth in this world, it's going to be because you hear Jesus and you receive his word. So that's the second. Jesus is a true witness. Number three, a, a third reason here to believe in Jesus is that he's the only way to salvation. Verses 21 through 24, it's patently offensive in our day and age to say that, that he's the only way to salvation. So why would a guy like me in a public setting like this make Jesus look so bad and so narrow-minded as to say that? Well, because that's what Jesus does. Jesus makes that claim, right? That, I mean, the great news is it depends on how you look at it. Like, oh, is that narrow-minded? Or is that the only way, and praise God, that there is a way? because our situation is so desperate. But let's look at verses 21 through 24 together. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, probably mocking here, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Uh, will He kill Himself? There's Johannine irony all the way through this uh, book. And one of those is whenever they raise this question, like I said, probably mocking, is that what they don't seem to realize, connected to God's sovereignty and God's plan, that Jesus will lay down His life that he'll be vindicated, that, that he'll be raised, and that'll, over, that'll defeat death on our behalf. So how does Jesus lay this out? Just that you can see this, we do it pretty efficiently, that number one, he's going away. 
This confuses them, right? In a previous passage, they're, they're like, hey, is he going out to the diaspora and uh, going to share the gospel with Hellenistic Jews and maybe some Gentiles or, or whatnot? But he's going away. And there's an illusion there that he's going to die. An illusion that he's going to die. Um, but that's not the end of it because he'll be returning to the Father. He'll be ascending. And they can't go, verse 21, where he's going because they don't have access that, you know, like, hey, I'm going into this members-only place or in this status-only place, and you're not a member. You don't have status. You can't come through the door. You don't have the credentials to do that. You have to know somebody to get in, and you don't know the people you need to know to get in. And the reason they won't be able to follow him is that they're from different places. It's one of the big contrasts. It's like, you know, you're from below, and I'm from above. Uh, you're of the world, or you're from the world. I'm not of the world. So we're, we're talking about two really different spheres. And then, again, the irony. Who do his opponents claim to represent? These, are, these aren't just leaders. These are religious leaders. So who is it that they claim to represent? Well, God. And, and in claiming to represent God, here's the, the form of the irony. They can't go. They can't go where he goes. And while they claim or assume that they are representing God, they won't be able to reach Jesus because they won't have access to Him. And the reason is because Jesus will be with God and God is beyond their reach. Jesus is the only... But here's the exclusivity, okay? Jesus is the only way to avoid dying in your sin. A couple of things. Just shoot it straight. You have sin. Okay, you have sin. How do you address that? Now, there's a lot of human ways, attempts to try to think that through. And what some people try to do is they try to make up for it. Right? Like, ah, oh, I did these bad things in the past, but I'm a different person now. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to do. I'm just saying, does that erase sin? Does that answer sin? Like you, like say for example, um, you, let's be silly here, right? Say you, you slap somebody's puppy. Okay? Slap their puppy. Just devastates them because they love their puppy and all that. And then you buy them a lifetime um, you know, supply of chewy toys. Okay? Right? And you say, that's a lifetime. It's one slap. In the heat of the moment, the way the puppy was looking at me, right? But just one slap in the heat of the moment. But look at this, the weight of an infinite supply of chewy toys. Well, the question is, like, just think a little bit more philosophically or judicially. Does that mean you didn't slap the puppy? Can you unsin? Do we say that about somebody who's on death row? Well, you know, he, he killed four people, but uh, look at all the good things he's done. It doesn't make it as though that person didn't commit that sin. You have sin, and that sin is severe. And it has to be addressed before a holy God who has no tolerance for sin. It has to be addressed. And Jesus tells them, your sins, you're going to die. You're going to die. It tells them that in two places. 21, it, it says that, like, listen, you're going to die in your sins. But by the time he gets to verse 24, he says it this way. I told you that you would die in your sins, and here's why. For, that's, that's reason language. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, there's that I am language. Uh, you can be saved. Anybody can be saved. But you have to put your trust in Jesus. Jesus is, is the only way to salvation. That makes sense whenever you think about what he's going to do. 
Because if your sin has to be addressed and it's severe, what addresses your sin? I mean, the reason it's exclusive is because it's hard. It's actually impossible unless somebody like him intervenes. There's nobody else like him. All right, number four, why I believe uh, it is the Father's plan or God's plan that Jesus is accomplishing. The last part of the passage, verses 25 through 30, what's going on in Jesus' ministry? Well, exactly what God intends to happen. God's got something going on in the world, and Jesus is executing that plan. And so the Pharisees are pressing for him to be open, and we'll see this at the beginning of verse 25, and we'll read the rest of it. He says, so they said to him, who are you? This is what they're really trying to nail down. They're trying to build a legal case against him. And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. All right, so they press him to be open, right? Who are you? And again, they're looking for a case to build against him. And his response is, again, kind of a threefold thing. I've been putting it out there, the end of verse 25 and 26. So what I've been telling you all along, I've been letting you know. You see it in the signs. You hear it in what I say. I haven't been running from the issue. It's a major point. I've got a lot more to say about you too, he says. But by the time you get to the end of verse 26, he's letting them know, my message to you is God's message to you. You've got to hear what I'm letting you know when it comes to who I am. This is right. I'm coming to you from the one who sent me. The, the words that I'm giving you is what I've heard from him. What's going to make him understand? He, he uses this phrase, and that as, as a reader of John and as a believer, you look back and you go, oh, he's talking about the cross. He says, when I am lifted up, then you'll see. When I go to the cross... That's going to show you everything that God's been doing here, right? That, that complex of events there, death, burial, resurrection. Um, then they would know, and again, the I, I am language. So look at verse uh, um, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, third time that shows, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and then He'd like, coming from him who sent me, and everything I do is exactly what the Father is working out. What I do, doing on God's authority, he says. What I say, God taught me, I'm here because he sent me, he's by my side, even though everybody else might be on your side, and I'm faithful to God, everything I do is pleasing to him. Now, this I am language, I am the light of the world. You're going to die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. I'm going to be lifted up, and you're going to see what God is doing. You're going to see that I am He. This I am language is electric language because what He's saying is, I'm wearing God's name tag. When I'm identifying who I am, if you want to know, you're looking at God's name tag. I am He. And out of the controversy of this, in verse 30, it says, many in the crowd believed Him. They hear it all. They know the leaders oppose Him, and yet many of them believe. If you're going to assess what Jesus has done in the world, to do that is to assess what God has done in the world. So there's the sweep. 
the reasons to believe in Jesus, what's, what people are really considering is, who is he? And what am I supposed to make of it? You're supposed to believe in him for everything, right? So the question is, when you look at something like verse 30 and you realize that they're, they're having to size him up and they're having to figure out what they make of him, and many believe, what about you? What about, like whenever you, you look at all those credentials about him, because this isn't once in a generation, this is once in the history of the world. He's that transcendent, okay? So what about you? And so I'm going to lay out some categories of how people tend to respond to Jesus. It's a little bit like the parable of the soils, um, you know, to ask the condition of your heart, to ask, like, like, how do I receive this word that God is making known to me? How, how, do, how do you respond to Jesus? So I'll give you five categories and, and maybe identify yourself in one of these. Which one do you fall into? Number one, don't care. And you just shrug it off. Like, is it true? I don't care. I don't care. It might be important. It's just not important to me. And that, I don't know, that might, you might feel like that strengthens you. Doesn't that tell you something about where you are? To see that the only source of life is there before you and you're numb to it? You have no appetite for it? It might tell you how messed up you are. If, if eternal life is before you and you're like, eh, I'd just rather think about other things. And the clock is ticking on your life. You 20-something, it doesn't take very long to be 50-something. Right? It speeds up as you go, it turns out don't care. That's a dangerous place to be. Uh, number two, a response to Jesus is, how dare you? Yeah, I never, right? It's, uh, they, they, Jesus provokes them. And what a lot of people like to do in the modern world is take a look at somebody like me and say, oh, that preacher guy, he made me mad. I like Jesus. Now, that's fair if I'm messing something up. But if I'm telling you what Jesus said uh, and you're mad about that, then maybe you're actually mad about what Jesus said, and I'm just a messenger, okay? And so the message of Jesus can really provoke people and really make them mad, in part based on the exclusivity or based on just the narrative or, or the probing truth that this is who you are and that needs to be addressed. You're not okay on your own. Um, little, let me try to argue this out a little bit to help. Have you ever, either you or somebody you know, been angry at what somebody told you, even though it was true? And what that tells you, and the answer to that is yes, by the way, right? And what that tells you is that sometimes something can be true, it can be exactly what you need to hear, and you don't want to hear it. There's something in the human condition that the truth doesn't solve things for you. The, because your want to is messed up, right? Your acumen is off. So the how dare you, I can't believe that this is the way. So the, the reality is, if somebody's going to do you a favor, they just tell you the truth and say, you not liking it isn't going to change how reality works. You're going to have to accept reality uh, before you can come into it. Just see a psychologist and they'll tell you the same. At some point, you just have to accept this is how it is. This is, this is the frame you've got to come into. All right, number three, mind-only mode. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, you, you, you get on an airplane and you turn your uh, phone to airplane mode, right? It, it only works for parts of your phone. The rest of your phone isn't engaged. And this is where somebody hears the claims about Jesus and they, they encounter that, but they only engage their mind. 
They think about it, they're interested in it, intellectually they uh, assent to it, but they intellectualize the faith, they think about the faith, they like to talk about the faith, um, but this is the kind of person who doesn't give himself to it. There's no heart there. I don't mean emotions, I mean the giving of yourself. There's a difference between a fan who's like sort of follows what's going on with the team and a player who trains, a soldier who enlists. And somebody whose mind only is somebody who's looking at the faith and they're looking at who Jesus is, like from this peripheral view, and while they're sympathetic and they like Jesus, they don't really belong to Jesus because the life isn't there, okay? Number four, the uh, yes, Jesus, now meet my other gods, that kind of reception, right? Like, I really like Jesus. I like the whole thing about, because I know I'm a sinner and I want my sin forgiven. That sounds great to me. And I want eternal life because that, that beats eternal death any day. But, and, and he seems like a good guy to me, so I like that. But I also have these other gods that I, I like. You don't have to call them other gods if you don't. You could call them your spiritual mistresses, okay, if you like, if you prefer that, right? And it's like say, okay, so we're encountering our marriage day, and I just want you to know I'm so excited about this, but you need to be introduced to my mistress because she's going to be around. She's going to be a big part of our lives. So what, did, what are these things, these other gods, these other things? They're the things, if you want to know how to put your finger on it, they're the things that come first in your life. And when you encounter something in the Word and God is telling you, like, this does not belong in your life, you're, you tend to ignore it or justify it or skip to the next verse, you know, because that one might be about somebody else's sin rather than yours, right? And so these things that come first, they tend to come first and you don't want to let them go and you know what they are. I mean, listen, okay? If God is who he is, then his throne is not to be shared with anyone or anything. And I get it whenever you're torn. I've struggled with my own sin too. But if you're torn, like choose. I mean, you get it? Because the sin, where does it take you? you to death and blindness, right? Distortion. And where does Jesus tell you? Like, if you don't think, if you think I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm never going to have to give up anything that's, that's got an attachment to my heart, you're just fooling yourself. So Jesus calls you to die to yourself. And when that happens, you know what you've got to do? It's time to die to yourself. Live in the truth. But the idea that you would say yes to Jesus and up there put all those other things that you just rather, right, like Scripture calls you against, the Lord Jesus calls you against, and you just want to put it up there and say, share the throne. The effect is to negotiate with God so that you limit His place in your life. You know, you believe in God. Is God your God? Yeah, He's my kind of God. He's my when I'm in the mood God. He's my anything but that God. This dilutes the gospel and, and ask Him to share His throne. He won't do it, not even for you. And then finally, the my everything. I mean, this is just the, the truth of it. Jesus is either who he says he is or he's not. Um, it's either true or he's not. He's either the way or he's not. So a half reception is no reception. A good picture of this is baptism, by the way. Right? There's an, a, an immersion uh, into this life. So you see death, burial, and resurrection, a new life that... Uh, emerges is being pictured there, a transformation from death and cleansing to a new life 
lived for Jesus, awake and, and engaged in the kingdom of God. So you, you realize this is true, and so you submit yourself to it, you immerse yourself, uh, you're, you enter into it, and you put your everything on Jesus because of what he's done, and you know he's the way, the truth, and the life. So the question is, whenever you look at these five, where do you land? So if you just, like, don't care, you shrug it off, well, I just, that's a dangerous place. And if you were, um, you know, if you're provoked, you know, how dare God tell me the truth about things? Um, if you're in that spot, it's, it's okay, engage reality. If you're really interested in what's true, you'll see it because there's, the truth is in Jesus. If you have these other ways where you're negotiating with God to stave him off, uh, but when you realize who Jesus is, he's worthy of your everything. See in verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in verse 24, uh, unless you believe that he, that he is the one, you'll die in your sins. So the message is, come and believe, because life is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great Savior in Jesus, light of the world, the one who addressed our sin, the only one who can, but who did and did so effectively. He's worthy of our everything. God, give us the grace that the light would be on so that of, of all people, we wouldn't lie to ourselves and that we would, we would receive Jesus, believe in Him, live for Him, and walk in that light and share it with neighbors who need Him so much. May you be glorified in that we celebrate the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.